turn your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to walk through Matthew. This morning we're closing out chapter 5. We're looking at Matthew 5, 43 to 48. In 2015, a gunman shot down nine people at an AME church in Charleston, South Carolina. At the hearing, I think just a week later, family members addressed the shooter. They expressed forgiveness, hope for God's mercy, and prayers for him. One father stated this, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. We would like for you to take this opportunity to repent and confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so that he can change it. He can change your ways no matter what happened to you, and you will be okay. Do that, and you will be better off than what you are right now. In 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and three other of their friends who were missionaries were martyred when seeking to take the gospel to the Aka Indians of Ecuador. Many of you are likely familiar with that account. And I hope you're familiar with the fact that after their deaths, Jim Elliott's wife Elizabeth and Nate Saint's sister Rachel returned to minister to these very Indians, seeing many come to Christ. They went to love and care for and share the gospel with those who had killed their loved ones. In the first century AD, the early church set aside seven men to serve as deacons. Men that were respected, men who were known for their walk with the Lord, who loved the Lord, served the body of Christ. One of these men in Acts chapter 7 was falsely accused and taken before the Jewish council. Before the Jewish council, he shared the gospel and stood in defense of his faith to no avail. He was stoned to death. As he was being stoned just before he died, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, prayed this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Praying for the very men who were taking his life as he prayed. How could this be? How could, how could these individuals say the things they said? How, how could they look in the eyes of the ones who took their loved ones from them? The eyes of the ones who were taking their very life from them and pray for them? How, how could they hope for God's mercy on these souls? How could they appeal for them to come to faith in Christ in hopes that they would spend all eternity with these individuals? Well, the only way they could do this is by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. To take seriously the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5 that we read today. With that framework, with that understanding in the back of our minds, I want us to read this passage this morning, Matthew five forty-three to 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This section here, verses 43 to the end of chapter 5, is connected to the passage we studied last week when we talked about uh, verses 38 to 42 about about Christ's instruction, his teaching, that we are not to be those who take personal vengeance. We are not to retaliate. And so we talked about last week what we're not to do. This week, we turn to the passage where he says, this is what you are to do. What does it look like to, maybe, maybe you could say, go on the offensive towards your enemies? And what we find in this passage is, is that it looks markedly different than what you would think and what the world would say is what it looks like to go on the offensive to your enemies. See, the world would say, you attack your enemies. You put them down. You eliminate them. You get rid of them. You neutralize them. Our Lord says, you pray for them and you love them. The, the Old Testament background for verse 43, you see Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The, the Old Testament background for that is found in Leviticus 1918, and what Jesus is referring to is the common teaching on Leviticus 1918. I want you to hear Leviticus 1918. It says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, so that's, the, that's the teaching. That's what the word says. That's what is written in Leviticus 1918. But again, I'll, I'll call your attention to this as we have all through this, these uh, six different teachings on the law from Jesus in Matthew 5. He doesn't say it is written, does he? What does he say? You have heard that it was what? You have heard that it was said. He's not referring to the exact written law of Leviticus 19, 18. He's referring to what is said about that, the interpretation, the application of it among Jews, among the religious leaders. So let's think about Leviticus 19.18 in comparison to what is said. Do you hear the difference? Listen again. Leviticus 19.18, the end of it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That's the admonition. That's the command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what is said? Jesus says, you've heard what is said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What's the difference? Do you, do you see the difference? What's the difference between the two? You can talk if you want. You can talk if you don't want to. What's the difference? Hatred? Okay, hatred is added, right? Jesus says nothing about hating. I mean, Leviticus 19, 18 says nothing about hating your enemy, right? Do you see any other difference there? There's another difference. Not only is, is hatred added, what's omitted? As yourself. So we see in Leviticus 19.18 what is written in the Word of God and what is taught, what is said about that, how is it applied. And we see an omission and an addition. The omission is the standard of that love. 
that we are to love our neighbor, not just in this like kind of soft, gentle, like, okay, I just did enough to say that I was nice to them and that I love them. Not just that, but you're to love them as you love yourself. That's a high standard of love, right? There's a high standard. So that standard of love is omitted. And what's added? So what's added is that you hate your enemy. So you have an omission and an addition, See, the Jews were, had, had come to a place where they were starting to make assumptions and go, well, you know what? If I'm to love my neighbor, then that means that it doesn't say anything about my enemy. So maybe my enemy, that means if I love my neighbor, then I'm free to hate my enemy. They, they were kind of making assumptions. They were starting to teach that. If you recall, this is, the, this is kind of the, the framework and the thinking that governed the, the interaction between the lawyer and Jesus in, in Luke 10. If you want to turn to Luke 10, you're free to, or I'll just read it to you. But Luke 10, you know the passage. Many of you are familiar with this. I would say even if you don't come to church that often, you've heard of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? A pretty common story that we reference and say the Good Samaritan. Oh, yes, I know, I'd be a Good Samaritan. Well, listen to this. In Luke 10, verse 25, we read this. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, being a good lawyer, right, finds the loophole, he thinks, Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, do you remember the question he asked? But who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, why does he ask that? Because the, the common teaching is that you have neighbors and you have enemies. And so he wants to know, hey, could you define my neighbors so I know who to love as myself? And then I'll know who I don't have to love as myself. I can actually hate them. Well, Jesus, his answer is, listen, you need to A, love God, B, love your neighbor. And when you ask, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus, essentially, the rest of the story, the account of the Good Samaritan, when he tells that, Jesus answers and says, listen, you're thinking about this all wrong. All wrong. Because you're trying to go about life and figure out who, who's my neighbor so I know who to love and I don't really care about anyone else. And Jesus calls us to a higher standard. He goes through the account of the Good Samaritan, he gets to the end and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? So Jesus flips it around and says, listen, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who is my neighbor, it's do you prove to be a neighbor? It's not about who can I love and who do I not have to love. And the Jews had relegated it to this. The, the teaching, the, the interpretation of the, of the scribes and Pharisees had essentially departed from the truth, the, the purpose, the intent of the law of God in Leviticus 19.18. You see, the, the purpose of Leviticus 19 was not to distinguish between enemies and neighbors. That, that was not the purpose of that teaching. Yet the religious leaders had brought it to this point and had interpreted it that way. In, in fact, by doing this, by saying you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies, by doing that, they absolutely ignore Exodus 23, 4-5. In Exodus 23, we read this. We, we read uh, expressions of love, not hatred towards enemies. Listen to what we're supposed to do. He says, if you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So if you see your enemy in distress, if you see your enemy's livestock in distress, you're not to, to go and to, to, to leave it and to just go, go your way as though you don't care. You're not to do and act and respond in hatred. No, you're to respond in love and care for your enemy, he says here. Because your enemy is your neighbor. I, I appreciated this week in studying what, what Charles Spurgeon had to say on this. He says this, he says, In this case, a command of Scripture had a human antithesis fitted to it by depraved minds, and this human addition was mischievous. This is a common method to append to the teaching of Scripture something which seems to grow out of it or to be natural infer- inference from it, which may be false and wicked. This is a sad crime against the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit will only father his own words. Now listen to what he says. He owns the precept. I'm talking about the God, the Holy Spirit. He owns the precept, thou shalt love thy neighbor, but he hates the parasitical growth of hate thine enemy. Spurgeon says, listen, that the addition to hate your enemy is a parasite. See, God said to love your neighbor, to love your neighbor, and your neighbor includes enemies, to love your neighbor. He does not call us to hate our enemies. Now, I believe this is a reminder that we must be careful the way we interpret Scripture. And this is a reminder for us today that we have to practice careful exposition of Scripture. And this is not just for a preacher. This is not just for a teacher or a professor. This is for all Christians that we need to practice careful exposition of Scripture. What is exposition? It's simply, you might think of it as exposing the truth of God's word. It's, it's drawing out what is the original meaning? What is the, what is, what is the truth of the text? It's the, it's the discipline of, of studying and determining what is the original truth before we go and we seek to just apply it. We have to practice careful exposition based on the fact that we understand that Scripture has truth to it. There is a truth. There is an original meaning, and we need to know what that original meaning is. We don't just take Scripture and abuse it and fit it to, make, or to fit whatever we want it to say. Here's why that's important. It means that, that we need to beware of interpretation that just absolutely disregards the context of where it's written. We, we don't just jump into Scripture and jump into Matthew chapter four, or 5.43 and just read that verse with no regard to what's going on in the rest of the chapter, even the rest of the book. We need to know what's going on. We need to know the context. It means that we need to beware of interpretation that adds to Scripture what's not there. We need to be aware of that. And that's what the, the Pharisees were doing here. They were just adding to Scripture something that was not there. We need to beware of an interpretation that contradicts the rest of Scripture. An interpretation that we might look at and say, well, oh, this, this must be what that means here. And, and we ignore what Scripture teaches elsewhere. When we come across a difficult passage, we go, I don't know, well, it must mean this. Or, or maybe, maybe this, this kind of fits what I see over here in my life, and so it means this. But yet all of Scripture is contrary to that interpretation. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of interpretation that's based on our own subjective experience or feelings. That we take our feelings, we take our experience, and then we try to find that text to fit those feelings and fit those experiences, disregarding the context, disregarding the teaching of Scripture as a whole. We just want it to fit what we want it to fit. 
And perhaps maybe one of the most important things we need to hear in our day, something that you hear all the time. I mean, you can just cruise through YouTube and hear this all the time on these nice little pretty three-minute videos that have these profound teachings on culture and, and what the Bible says. It means that we need to be aware of interpretations that would say, you know what, don't listen to 2,000 years of saints and theologians teaching and interpretation of Scripture. What it really means is this. Oh, 2,000 years of God's people, they've got it wrong. They missed it. These guys were fools. They weren't as smart as we are. <laughs> Isn't that it? Right? Because, I mean, we're obviously much more intelligent than all those who went before us. We need to be aware of those interpretations. Be careful of gymnastics that are done with the Word of God to fit cultural teachings, cultural philosophies, cultural worldviews that stand in contrast to the truth of Scripture. We need to be aware of that. We need to practice good exposition. So what is Jesus teaching then? What does Jesus say? He says, but I say to you, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I just imagine that at this point, they're sitting and they're listening. You know, they're on the hillside. They're listening to Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount. And they come across this and they go, love who? What? Are you serious? Because this would have meant what? It would mean that they have to love their, their Roman soldiers who are walking around and oppressing them. It means that they love the tax collectors who are taking advantage of them. It means that they love the evil one who is seeking to wrong them. It means that they love the wicked who oppose their religion and malign their God. And so you know that they have to be sitting back going, wait a minute. I'm supposed to love them? Yes. According to Jesus, love of our neighbor includes our enemies. It includes our enemies. It, it isn't love your neighbor and hate your enemies. It is love your neighbor and to love your enemy and to pray for your enemy. Neighbor includes enemy. Listen, what we're going to see here is that to restrict our love to only those who we deem to be our neighbor makes us no different than an unbeliever. So if you're here and you're a believer and you're going to just pick and choose who you love based on who you like or who likes you, who looks like you, who thinks like you, and then the rest you don't love, then that makes you no different than someone who is not a believer, someone who's sitting in here perhaps today and does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. But see, God teaches us to love our neighbor. That's why, that's why Jesus says what he says here in verses uh, uh, 46 and on down to 48. In, in verse 46, he, he teaches, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? I mean, even the tax collectors love the people that love them right? Then he goes on in verse 47, he, he talks about the Gentiles, that if you, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? He said, listen, even unbelievers, they come across, hey, what's up, man? And they love their brothers, the people who look like them, who think like them, who like the things they like and do the things they do. That's easy. That's what everybody does. However, to love our enemy is not only different from the world's view of how to treat an enemy, but it is a clear demonstration that you are a child of God. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, this so that is not a statement of merit. It's not as though that it, you, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's not a statement of merit. You're not earning salvation. No, this is a statement of demonstration so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, so that you may show yourself to be like your Father. The, the New American Standard, I think, and the New Living Translation, both of them give us an understanding of this and, and, and how it's interpreted, seeing that the, the Greek and English language to make it make sense for us. The New American Standard says, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The, the New Living Translation says, in that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. It's a demonstration of who we are right? That you would, you would just hear this morning, if children, if I asked you, if I said, hey, what traits do you see in yourself that looks like your parents, right? Well, you might say, well, I, I do this just like my dad does, and I do this like my mom does. And you, when you say those things, your mom goes, oh yeah, you do that just like your dad, right? And we see those traits. We see those things that, that look like our parents. But one of the traits that looks like God in his children as we are adopted children of God, one of the traits that shows that we are a child of God is what? That we love our enemies. Is that not what God did? Did he not love us when we were yet enemies of his? Listen, listen to Romans 5. Romans 5, 8 through 10. A remarkable passage. Listen to this. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Say, from his wrath. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What a beautiful passage. That while we were yet enemies, we were opposed to God. He reconciled us. He brought us near. He brought, destroyed the enmity that existed between us. He brought us back into relationship with him. And so Paul says in verse 11, he says, so we rejoice in God. Why are we here today? Believers, why are we here? To check a box? To warm a seat? To make a pastor feel good? No, none of those. We're here today because we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're here because we rejoice in the fact that when we were yet enemies, he reconciled us to himself. We rejoice in the fact that he demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners, while we were opposed to him, while we were rebels, while we were transgressors, while we were running according to our own will and our own desires, seeking the desires of the flesh. He showed his love for us and died for us. Man, what an awesome God we serve. We see it also. Here's another example of it. Luke 23, 34. Jesus is on the cross. He's been beaten. He's been scourged. He's been mocked. Remember last week we read that the passage of the crucifixion in Mark? We talked about how he had been falsely accused, wrongly accused, mocked, beaten. He had something put over his head and they just strike him and beat him and they give him lashes to the point he's almost about to die. They take him to be crucified. He can't even, he's so weak, he's so beaten. He can't even carry his own cross. So Simon the Cyrene has to carry it for him. He gets there they crucify him. What does he do? Not only did he 
not revile in return. Not only did he keep his mouth closed that we heard in the scripture reading this morning. Not only did he not speak. What did he do? In Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed. He prayed for them. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. We read, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Listen. (laughs) Perhaps the greatest thing we can be reminded of this morning is that we as believers once stood opposed to God at enmity with him. We were rebels. We did not love him, but he loved us. And he set his mercy and grace upon us. He sent his son to die for us that we might be saved and reconciled. What a beautiful savior. What an amazing grace he's shown. The goodness and grace of our God when we did not deserve it. But listen, You know what point Jesus continues to make here? Is not only did he show his grace and mercy to us in saving us, not only do we look back and we see that, but we see God's mercy, we see his love, we see his goodness and grace every day towards his enemies. Every day. Look what Jesus says. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What's the example he gives? For what? For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God shows his goodness to believers and unbelievers. He shows his goodness and his mercy and his provision to those who are righteous and to those who are wicked. This is known, theologians call this God's common grace. That God shows common grace to all of his creation. He shows his goodness to all of his creation. We see this in the fact that God's gracious character in his grace, in his mercy, he restrains depraved men from being as bad as we could be, as evil as we could be. He blesses the work of unbelievers. He gives all men skills to create. He grants all men understanding of good and evil. We have a moral bearing about us. It's a display of God's common grace. It's a display of his goodness, his mercy on his creation. That's the precedent. Those who stand at enmity with God today. Those who oppose him. Yeah, the guy on the commercial that some of you guys are texting me about saying, have you seen this commercial? Who says, I'm an atheist and I'm not scared of hell. Have you seen that commercial? Just blatantly flaunting that he is opposed to God. That guy has breath this morning. That guy has provision of his needs That guy experiences God's common grace every day because God loves his enemies. God is just. God is holy. The day of judgment will come, but his common grace is poured out presently. So what does this look like practically? What does it look like practically to love your enemy? It's one thing to say, you know what, you should do it. What does it look like in our lives, right? What does it look like when we go to school and God says, hey, love your enemy, the, the kid who is being mean to you, bullying you. What does it look like when we go to work to love your enemy, the coworker who is spreading rumors about you, 
the boss who is preventing you from doing what you can do and achieving what you want to achieve because you're a Christian? What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, I was reminded this week in our reading, some of you are reading through Scripture, Genesis 50, 18 to 21. Do you remember Genesis 37 through 50, the account of Joseph, right? His brothers sell him, they betray him. They sell him into slavery. And I was just reminded in Genesis 50 at the very end of the account of what's happening and Joseph's brothers have come. They've sought help. He's helped them. He's given them aid. His father has returned and seen his son. And his father dies. When his father dies, his brothers all of a sudden go, okay, Joseph was probably just being nice to us and loving us because dad was around. Dad's gone. We're probably hosed at this point, right? We're in trouble. Well, we read in verse 18 to 21 of Genesis 50. Listen to what happens. It says his brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. They're pleading. They're begging. They're, wanting, they're doing that because they had planned to come and get on his good side. And Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So bring it about that many, or to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. Listen to what he does. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So we see an example of Joseph, right? Joseph didn't retaliate against his brothers, those who had shown themselves to be his enemies in the past. He didn't retaliate. What did he do? He trusted God's plan. He trusted that God is sovereign, that God uses all things to the good, to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He trusted the fact that God sees all things, that God was with him, that God had a plan. He was working out that plan. He trusted that. But not only did he just trust God's plan, he blessed his brothers. Those who had shown themselves to be enemies, he blessed them. He provided for them. He spoke words of comfort and kindness to them. Joseph is a demonstration of what it means to love your enemies. I would would contend to you that that most supremely and, and practically to love your enemies means to long for, to pray for, and to work for their salvation. That they would hear the gospel. They would trust the Lord. They would turn to the Lord. That that we would appeal to them, trust Christ. That's what you saw in the example we began the morning with the the church in, in, um, in Charleston. Their appeal, what was their appeal? Come to faith. Come to faith, repent, and turn to Christ. Do you long for the salvation of your enemies? Do I long for the salvation of my enemies, those who would oppose me and malign me and stand against me or my family? Do I pray for them? Do I pray that God would do a radical work in their lives because I know that God is greater than any sin a man can, create, can, can uh, enter into? That I know that there is no one beyond the scope and the power of God's transforming, saving grace? I mean, think about Paul. What about the Apostle Paul? You think, oh, well, that guy's too bad. That guy would never. What about Paul? I would say all the, all the Christians, early Christians, were thinking about that about Paul. I mean, they were worried when they first heard, remember? You read in Acts and they first hear that Paul is preaching and they're kind of leery. They're like, wait a minute, maybe this is a trap. Paul came to faith. John Stott, in, in his commentary, was helpful. He points out, if you look at the parallel passage, Luke 6, the, the parallel passage to Matthew 5, 48, or 43 to 48, is found in Luke 6, verses 27 to 28. And, and Stott notes that there we learn three ways that we love our enemies. 
Listen to what it says in, in 6.27. It says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. So Stott points out that we see three things. We see that we're to love our enemies by deeds of love, words of love, and prayers of love. Deeds, words, and prayers. Three simple ways that we can love those who hate us. So deeds of love. We're told to do good to those who hate us. We hear the same thing in Romans 12, verses 20 to 21, which is a quote of Proverbs 25, 11, or 25, 21, I'm sorry. Romans 12, 20 to 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Proverbs says the same thing. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. Do deeds of love. The second thing Jesus says is through words of love. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil for revile, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So we're to bless. We're to speak words of blessing to those who would be reviling us. Third, prayers of love. We see this in both Matthew and Luke. Pray for those who persecute you or abuse you. Matthew 5.44, pray for those who persecute you. And Luke is abused. Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer called this the, the supreme command. He said this is the, the supreme command. To pray for an enemy is the supreme command because through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. H- have you ever been there where you have someone who opposes you, who stands as your enemy, and you begin praying for them? we've practiced that in our own lives. I found that to be one of the most transformative things in my own heart because when you start praying for someone who opposes you, someone who you're angry with, it's really hard to stay angry with them. It's really hard to bring sin into the equation when we're praying to God. The Holy Spirit casts it out. And so as I pray for my enemy, there is a love that wells up in me for my enemy. It's a work of God in our lives. The supreme act of love to pray for those who would persecute you. Pray for those who would abuse you. So may we be a people who love and pray for our enemies. Now, to conclude our time this morning, I want us to look at the bookends in Matthew 5. There's two bookends. You understand what a bookend is, right? You guys who have a library, maybe you have a a big library, maybe you have a small one, maybe you have the decorative, you know, Reader's Digest books or whatever. But you have bookends on there to make your lamp look nice, right? So you can just imagine, you've got your little coffee table, your sofa table. I'm trying to draw on my interior decorating knowledge here. It's not helping me. But you've got your little sofa table here behind your couch and you've got six pretty books And you have a bookend on one side and a bookend on the other, right? Well, we see the same thing in Matthew 5. We see two bookends and we have six teachings from the Lord on the law. So if you just look at Matthew 5, the first bookend is found in verse 17 to 20, right? When he starts teaching, we've talked about this many times over the last few weeks. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? That's where he begins the teaching. Now, here's the first book in is verse 20. 
he gives this really high statement. Look at verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I could imagine it at this point that, that those hearing would probably look and go, you know what, so the scribes and Pharisees, okay, I'm, I'm down with that. I can do that, Lord. I mean, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. All I've got to do is be consistent, right? Just obey the law. If I just obey it, I'm good. I mean, they're hypocritical. So I'm just not going to be hypocritical. I'm, I'm all right. I think my righteousness might, might be able to exceed theirs. Well, Jesus then proceeds to go, let's, let's think about anger. Let's think about what the heart of that is, the command to not murder. Let's, let's then think about the command of committing adultery and, and what the real heart issue is there. Let's think about marriage. What's the heart issue? What's the true problem with the whole idea and area of divorce? And then let's think about oaths. Well, what does it really meaning, mean for us to be keepers of our word? What does it mean for us to be faithful? Why is that important? What's the heart of the issue? Let's think about retaliation. Let's think about the, the fact that, that we trust the Lord and we don't enact personal vengeance and retaliate against those who seek to harm us. And then let's think about our neighbor. Let's think about the true heart of the issue. It's not who your neighbor is, but it's how do you be a neighbor? How do you love all of those around you? How do you love your enemies and pray for your enemies? See, all through these, each one of these six teachings, Jesus is getting above or below the just kind of surface level, check the box law and looking at the heart of the issue. And so through these teachings, one after another, he's driving it home to his followers saying, look, there's more to it. It's deeper than just checking a box. It's deeper than just performing a deed. There is a heart issue going on here. And that heart issue is so deep. And that standard of God, the Holy God, is so high that guess what? You're going to fail. You're going to fail. And so the first bookend is your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And he gives us another book in, in verse 48. What is the other book in? Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father is perfect. So on this end of the teaching, your righteousness better exceed the most religious of the religious. And on this book in, you better be perfect as your Father is perfect. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm a had lad. I can't do it. I have no hope. I have no prayer. I can't stand before you in a nice pretty suit and plaid shirt and nice shoes and go, hey, I'm good to go. No, I'm not. I'm not. I fell miserably. I fell miserably. I get angry. I have lustful eyes. I struggle. But commitment. I want to retaliate. I told you guys last week, I, there's more vengeance in my heart than I care to admit. And I struggle to love my enemies. And I would say, if you're honest, you're sitting there right with me. John Stott wrote this. He said, it's become clear what the greater righteousness is to which Christians are summoned. It's a deep inward righteousness of the heart where the Holy Spirit has written God's law. It is new fruit exhibiting the newness of the tree, new life burgeoning from a new nature. So we have no liberty to try to dodge or duck the lofty demands of the law. 
Law dodging is a pharisaic hobby. What is characteristic of Christians is a keen appetite for righteousness, hungering and thirsting after it continuously. And this righteousness, whether expressed in purity, honesty, or charity, will show to whom we belong. So what does that mean? What does it mean we get to verse 48 and he says, you therefore must be perfect? There's an interesting parallel here. Parallel would be back to Leviticus 19.2. Peter cites it in 1 Peter 1, in his passages 13 to 16, he cites 19.2 in Leviticus. See, the parallel in what we read in Leviticus 19.2 is, be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Peter cites the same thing. Be holy. But see, the problem is, the Pharisees had relegated holiness to just this surface level obedience to the law, just checking off a box. They looked good on the outside. And what Jesus exposes in these six teachings in Matthew 5 is it's not just about the outside, it's about the heart. And you need to dig deeper, get past that. The law's true intent was to call us to a wholeness of life that included pure behavior and purity of heart. That which is capable only through God. See, the calling to be holy, the word holy is hagios. Hagios, that's the word that Peter uses quoting Leviticus 19.2. That word is used over 219 times, over 219 times in Scripture. It's holiness, it's purity, it's set-apartness. But in Matthew 5.48, it's a different word that's used. It's the word teleos. And that word is completeness, perfection, maturity. It's it's used 17 times in the New Testament referring to coming to maturity or coming to completeness. You can look at Ephesians 4.13 or Colossians 1.28 or Matthew 19.21 to see this used elsewhere in Scripture. It's this idea of, of, of being brought to an end, wanting nothing necessary for completeness. This consummate human integrity and virtue. It's growth in God's people to maturity that includes righteousness of morality and deeds but goes beyond and deeper into a righteousness of the heart it's the complete man what's it mean for us today i think i think john MacArthur gives a good statement on this he says the great purpose of salvation the the goal of the gospel and the great yearning of the heart of god is for all men to become like him in holiness Remember Romans 8, right? Remember that, we're, that God is conforming us into the likeness of Christ in Romans 8, 29. He's conforming us into the image of Christ, into the likeness of Christ, that we would be like him. That's the, that's the goal. It's what God's working us toward. That's what he's doing is sanctifying every one of us who are following him, who are redeemed, who are believers. God is sanctifying you and growing you in Christ, conforming you into his image. That's the great plan. That's the great desire. That's the great goal of God in the gospel. What you need to understand is, is we understand as that's the goal, the problem we trace back all the way to Genesis 3, we see the fall where righteousness is lost. We see the fall where, where men rebel and sin enters the world and then we walk through the Old Testament narrative. We see the narrative of Scripture and we see God, God giving laws to reveal the depth of our sin and the high holy standard of our God. And we're confronted with the reality that we can't do it. And Jesus drives us home again in Matthew 5. We can't do it. 
And we look back and we see the sacrificial system in all the Old Testament and it's constantly reminding us, it's constantly putting before our eyes that sin has to be atoned for. Sin has to be paid for. It has to be. It's not like we just sin and go, oh, no big deal, let's just move on. No, it has to be paid for. And we're reminded of that in the Old Testament. We're reminded of that through the sacrificial system. There's no sin too small or so small that it does not need God's forgiveness. There's no sin so small. We need Christ. We need Him. We need God's deliverance. We need salvation from Him. And so thanks be to God, He sends His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, a sinless life on our behalf and to die on the cross in our place. And He rises from the grave and He defeats death and ascends into heaven. And we have the great promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's a great promise of Scripture. So, so what does it mean for us today, unbelievers? It means this, that when you're confronted with what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, or when you're confronted, you read through the Old Testament, you see the laws of God and the sacrificial system, When you see all of that, it means that you need to realize there is only one way. There's only one way that you can be like Christ in holiness. There's only one way. And it is not through your deeds. It is not through your knowledge. It is not through your skills. It is through Christ. It's through Christ. I I love I absolutely love that whole passage in Leviticus 19.2 where he starts by saying, you be holy as I am holy for I am the Lord your God. And he goes through all these rules, all these laws and you get to the end and there's no way anybody goes, okay, I can do all that, good. I can be holy like you. You get to the end of those and you go, can't do it. And then in Leviticus 20 verse two, we read him saying, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I'm the one who makes you holy. See, the only way you can be holy, the only, one that you can, only way you can meet that standard, unbeliever, is through Christ. It's through Christ. Turn your life to Christ. Turn your life to the one who made him, talking about Jesus, who made him to be sin, who knew no sin, on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Turn your life to Christ. Give him your sin. And he gives you his righteousness. That's what it means for believers today. It means that we strive for personal holiness. We strive for personal holiness. It means we long to live as God's called us to live. It means that we long to live in a way that images and reflects and magnifies our Father. In a way that demonstrates that we are his children. We long for that. See, listen, here's the truth that, that we need to wrap our minds around today. Is that righteous living does not merit salvation from Christ. It doesn't. Righteous living does not merit salvation from Christ. No, righteous living magnifies the salvation we have through Christ. That's what righteous living does. And so believers, we're called to pursue him and to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to magnify the great name of Christ. That means that we're not content with fire insurance. We long for holiness. We're not content with this external appearance and law dodging that makes us look like we're we're very religious. No, we instead long for hearts that love Jesus deeply. 
We're not content with just managing sin and keeping it hidden and tucked away so that people don't see it and it doesn't embarrass us or it doesn't embarrass our spouse or it doesn't embarrass our kids or it doesn't embarrass our parents. We're not content with doing that, but instead we attack sin because we hate it and we want to put it to death and we want to pursue holiness. We understand that Satan is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour We understand the admonition of Paul in Colossians 3 to put sin to death and we take it serious because we long to live a life that magnifies and glorifies our great God, the one that we had the blessed privilege of bowing before and saying, our Father who art in heaven. (laughs) We're his children and we want to show people that and we want to magnify his great name. So I hope as we close Matthew chapter 5 today, I hope and pray that you've been confronted as I have with your inability, with the depth of your sin. Not not so that you go home just beating yourself up like a punching bag, but because it sends us home as believers, shaking our head at the grace and the mercy and the love of our God. See, my identity is not in what I do. Thank goodness. My identity is in what Christ has done on my behalf. That's my identity. That I'm a child of the King of Kings. God Most High. That's my identity. I've relied on Him for salvation. And I rely on Him for sanctification. And I hope You do the same. Let's pray.